Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. My name's David Lawrence Grant. Um, I'm a Minnesota-based screenwriter and teacher at Filmmaker, uh, Independent Fil Filmmaker Project North, and uh, also for the uh, Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. I've also written reports on racial disparities for the uh, Minnesota Supreme Court and the state legislature on disparities in health uh, here in Minnesota. Couldn't be more pleased tonight to facilitate this conversation with New York Times best-selling memoirist, Morgan Jenkins. But before I introduce her properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series uh, that's bringing her to you this evening. Club Book is a program of MELSA, which is the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, which is part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Club Book has been part of the Twin Cities literary landscape in some form for a decade now, but they've never brought you a season quite like this. Heartfelt thanks tonight to Carver County Library, where the co-host of this program had this wild year shape, shaped out differently. They would have hosted Morgan at their beautiful library facility in Chanhassen tonight. And it is gorgeous if you ever get a chance to see it. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Book Red Balloon Bookshop in St. Paul. So without further ado, our guest tonight, Morgan Jenkins, is the New York Times bestselling memoirist behind the popular 2018 essay collection, This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America. Her highly anticipated follow-up, Wandering in Strange Lands, hit shelves in August, subtitled A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. Jenkins' sophomore book is at once deeply personal and national in its scope. Between 1916 and 1970, six million Black Americans left their rural homes in the South for jobs in cities in the North, the North, the Midwest, and Midwest, in a movement known as the Great Migration. In so doing, many became disconnected from their proud roots. As a means of rediscovering those national stories, Jerkins traced her own ancestors' circuitous journey across the country, from Georgia and South Carolina to Louisiana and Oklahoma, and all the way to California. In a starred review, Publishers Weekly lauded Jerkins' careful research and revelatory conversations with historians, activists, and genealogists result in a disturbing yet ultimately empowering chronicle of the African-American experience. After Morgan speaks about the book and the personal journey underpinning it, I'll come back in the frame and ask her some burning questions. So without further ado, Morgan, please take it away. Hello everyone, my name is Morgan Jerkins. I'm the author of This Will Be My Doing: Living at the Intersection of Black, Female and Feminist in White America, and the most recent Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. And so I think the way that I wanna start this off is just by talking about the timing of this book, because I think that that will kind of shape uh, the passage that I'm going to read. Mm -hmm. um, 
I will say that my book was originally supposed to come out in May of this year. Um, and of course, we all know what's going on with the pandemic and lockdown. Um, I live in New York. At one point, that was the epicenter of the virus. And so in early April, my editors emailed me and asked me if it was okay to move the pub date to August 4th. And I was happy about it because I was trying to emotionally connect, collect myself during this unprecedented time. And um, I thought, oh, August, that would be great. That's enough time for things to open up again. Um, there's a lot of traveling in the book. So I thought that you can, we can, we can uh, promote this as a travel book. But then the protests happened. And that was incredible in a way that I, I'd never seen protests like that happen before. And so the book started to become a little bit more prescient. And so the excerpt that I'm gonna read is a combination of uh, original material and also from something from the book. To preface the, the excerpt that I'm gonna read, I met a woman when I was in California. I traveled all across the country in order to bridge the gap between black people who fled their ancestral lands and those who stayed. And one of the people who I met was a migrant and her name um, is uh, Regina. And uh, Regina, she used to work at the LAPD. She was the first responder for the LAPD call that led to um, the 1965 riots, which at the time yeah. was the biggest riots that the world has ever seen, America especially. So I just wanna read a bit of that combined with stuff that was going on in America in 2020 um, to just show you how the past and present converge. Mm-hmm. The thing about protests against police brutality on American soil is that they are cyclical. History is full of attempts by white people to curtail black mobility, slave patrols, redlining and residential segregation, police surveillance. Black people are tired of it. We've been tired. And what happens when you squeeze an already disenfranchised population into a figurative corner? After a while, they explode. The protests that have followed George Floyd's death in May are one example of such an explosion, but they are not the first. On August 11, 1965, 21-year-old Marquette Fry was pulled over on 116th Street and Avalon Boulevard in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles for reckless driving. A crowd of 50 people watched as Fry failed sobriety tests. As the police were about to tow Marquette's car, his older brother Ronald brought their mother Rena to the scene. According to police reports, Marquette was compliant at first, but as soon as his mother and brother showed up, he turned spiteful, saying that they had to kill him to take him to jail. When the officers tried to arrest him, he resisted and Rena jumped onto an officer's back. An officer hit Marquette in the head with his baton, drawing blood. The crowd now swelled to almost a thousand people as Marquette, Ronald, and Rena were hauled off to jail. The chaos that ensued left 34 people dead, including 23 killed by LAPD officers or National Guard troops, as well as 1,032 injured, at least 600 buildings damaged from fires or looting, another 200 buildings completely destroyed, and around 3,500 people arrested. The event is now a specter that hovers over Black Angelinos. The memory is still vivid. Depending on whom you ask, the Watts riots may or may not be called an uprising or rebellion. The pain had been bubbling for far too long. Those who'd seen it were migrants or their parents had migrated to give them a better life. And yet the problems they fled greeted them in a new area code. Michelle James, the woman I met when I was researching Black migration to California, told me that Black people were just sick and tired of being sick and tired. By the time they reached Los Angeles, they just about had it with racism and the city served as a pressure cooker for black rage. Rochelle wanted me to meet the woman who picked up the first call into the police station when Marquette Fry was being arrested. She has been dealing with the fallout ever since. Regina is a first-generation Californian, born in 1942 and raised near Watts. Regina's grandfather, as she succinctly put it, was an uppity nigger. He owed an insurance company and made so much money that whites considered him a threat. Fleeing a lynch mob, he gathered his wife and their eight children and moved to California. When Regina's parents married, her father, whom she described as damaged by the war, worked an elevator starter at the Southern California Edison Company, and her mother became a beautician after working as a maid. 
By 15, Regina was married and she had four children by the time she was 19. She became a police dispatcher because her husband had been employed in the same office previously. After applying, taking a test and being hired in 1962, she worked at the Central Division, which is now the Parker Center, LAPD headquarters. During her probational period, she worked three months on the day shift, one month on night shift, and the last month on the graveyard shift. The hours took a toll on her, but not so much the work culture. She will be put on disciplinary probation for letting her hair hang over one eye or wearing a sleeveless top, and co-workers would shut the door on her as she came through the entrance right behind them. There were only six Black employees out of 150, she recalled. Her job was to answer phones for the 77th Street Division, responsible for a predominantly Black neighborhood. The district required diligent multitasking to alert police of crimes in the area. You know, normal nights come to work at three o'clock in the afternoon. As the evening progresses, it gets busier. All of a sudden, I hear that this officer needs help. I'm waiting and then nothing. Then an officer comes in on the radio, I say, please repeat yourself. Who are you? Who are you? Nothing. All the pains and knots of losing an officer who needs help. Finally, I get him to come in, almost whispering, but it wasn't much help because the call was so broken up. I guess he was regretting that he started with officer needs help versus officer needs assistance. Help means bam, by any means necessary, basically. Assistance means to get another patrol car down there. I figured that bam was needed rather than waiting for a more orderly approach. At that point, I screamed out to the boys in the center, I've got an officer needs help, such and such. I finally got his location out of him, and of course they sent another police car, and then they took over from me. But by then, every officer in the 77th Street Division had heard it and is going completely nuts, trying to figure out what it is, so it unfolded in a weird, strange way. I knew, though, because it was 116th Avalon, and I lived at 118th and Central Avenue, which is not far, so I knew the neighborhood. Regina tried to tell her superiors not to escalate the situation, but they did so anyway. To this day, she's haunted by a single question. Why didn't they listen to me? After work, when Regina ran home, she saw that the grocery store around the corner had been burned down and sparks were still flying from the roof. She made her children stay in the bedroom and in the back of the house, thinking it too dangerous in the front. People were running down the street and looting stores and police were shouting. On the second night of the riots, there were military guards right off the Interstate 110 freeway. These white male guards pointed guns in her face and searched her car. Down the Imperial Highway, cars were ablaze and people were screaming. After the riots were over, Regina's mental health suffered. She obsessed over her children's safety and was often paralyzed by the stress. She would dream of answering phone calls at her job and talk in her sleep, ordering officers to return to the scene to find a missing limb. When I asked her how she coped with it all, her eyes were unyielding and unblinking. I waited patiently for her to continue. Then she replied, I didn't think about it. And that's a long story that I'm writing about to try and figure out now. I learned very early in life how to compartmentalize. So if something was comfortable or painful, uncomfortable or painful, I could put it in one section and go on. The point that stuff's even coming up now that I'd forgotten, that's part of the weight on the stomach and I can feel the pain when it comes up. When I remember and write about it now, they're all shut. All the horrors are shut. I later asked if microaggressions at the workplace increased after the riots and she says, too numb to know, too numb to know, too numb. Wow. There's a lot there to kind of think about and unpack. Yeah. Um, but you're right. And I, I totally understand why you wanted to begin tonight uh, with that particular piece. Mm -hmm. um, is there something from the book, too, that you feel um, is a nice addendum to this? Something that... Um, We'll take it a little further, then we can jump off and, and have some Q&A. Um, you know, it, it's hard because, like, I'll say this. When it comes to my book, like, my, my um, the essay collection, it's very easy to, like, pick out certain parts and, to, like, cap and, like, to capture it. Uh, but I can talk a little bit just more about that um, with in terms of just the riots or just what I was doing. Um, I will say so far, my book has been out for a little over a month, and... A lot of times, you know, people ask me, like, what do you want people to take away from it? What do you want people to take away from this book? And it's very hard because when I think about it, um, I think about all the people who invited me into their homes. Like, Regina did not know me at all. Right. I, I was literally talking to a friend of hers in an Oklahoma airport um, who I found on Facebook because I was trying to find individuals 
who had memories of the 1965 and the 1992 riots. And I said, well, let me go on Facebook because a lot of older people I know are on Facebook. They're not on Twitter like me. And I was able to find this woman. I spoke to her in an airport and then she immediately connected me to Regina. And Regina invited me to her home and everything. So when people ask me this question about, you know, what I want people to take away from it, it's just, it's just, it's a, a devastating reminder of like how much black people have gone through in this country. Um, how cyclical things are. And the reason why I use the Great Migration as sort of an anchor for this book is because I think it's one of the greatest cultural shifts in American history, but it was brought about by Black people being terrorized, having to exactly move, right. you know what I'm saying? And every mm -hmm. time we want to move, whether it's long stretches like the Great Migration, or just going down the street, you know what I'm saying? There's always this threat that something could happen and we keep seeing it happen, you know? And what I think is eerie, I think this is an addendum I can think I can talk about. I met an underground rapper while I was down in, uh, in, in Los Angeles. That was the last stop of my book. And we were at the intersection of Florence and Normandy. And if any of you are familiar with that intersection, that is when the 92 riots sparked, was at right. this intersection. And I remember I asked him, you know, we got out the car. I was able to feel the energy, um, unfinished energy, if that makes sense. And I asked him, I said, you know, do you think that this will happen again, a riot of this scale? And he said, you know, if the country, I'll paraphrase, that if the country doesn't reckon to what it has done to black people in our communities, it will happen again. And literally two years after he said that, then the George Floyd protests happened. So only two years, whereas the 1965-1992 riots, that was almost a, that was a, a, almost close to a 30-year difference. So, yeah, that's something I still think about a lot. Yeah, it's, it's unavoidable. And, you know, I think to a very great extent, uh, white Americans are just beginning to understand because of everything that's happened since the murder of George Floyd. Right. Uh, a little bit more about our interior landscape than I think they've ever understood before, right? Right, right. Now there is no, you know, as you say, millions of, of our forebears came north, uh, largely fleeing terror, only to discover that in cities like Detroit and uh, Los Angeles and New York City mm -hmm. and um, uh, Cleveland, uh, the face of terror had shifted a little bit. Yeah. It was now wearing blue uniforms and, uh, you know, driving through the city in, in squad cars. Right, right. Uh, and that's what I have to tell people. Like, people came to Los Angeles even after being migrants in Oklahoma and all other places because they thought, oh, the sunny, the sunny weather, the beaches, all that. They go there and they realize that the problems that they fled from in another state is just re-upped in Los Angeles, because as you say, I mean, people don't understand that at one point, 20 to 30% of California, the police departments were populated by KKK members, especially the LA police, the LA police chief and the Bakersfield police chief. People don't understand that at one point, Compton was a white neighborhood and there were actually white gangs called the spook hunters. Right. Uh, they would terrorize these black people from moving into their neighborhoods. Uh, I didn't know about that history at all but it was actually former gang members who told me about that and me being from new jersey i just thought you know gang members is because of poverty it's you know because of crime disenfranchised our communities yes that's part of it but another part is a lot of these gangs were formulated in the beginning to protect themselves from white people yeah that's exactly right and um so yeah there there are huge gaps in America's um, consciousness about mm -hmm. its own past, its own yeah. history. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I'm sure that many of our people, when they moved north, had no idea that from Reconstruction right up through World War II, uh, the neighborhoods into which they were moving mm -hmm. had a history of having been ravaged by white mobs. Yes. And that's what a race riot used to mean. Mm -hmm. It meant to mean mm -hmm. white mobs. It used to mean white mobs tearing through a, a black neighborhood and burning and killing mm -hmm. um, in uh, mass acts of terror. Mm -hmm. uh, and thousands of people during that time period died in exactly that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, what, part of what we're going through right now as a, a nation is reclaiming some of that lost history, mm -hmm. looking at it dead in the face, mm -hmm. 
And uh, there are many, many voices around the country saying, why are y'all engaging in this revisionist history that y'all right. are doing? And, and our retort is always gonna be, no, no, no. This is a response to the revisionist history that we were all taught in school. Right, that right. ignored all this stuff, right? Right. Right. And that's what my book, like I've spoken to black people who've interviewed me and they were like, I'm so ashamed that I didn't know this part in your book. I didn't know that Gullah Geechee people existed. I didn't know about, you know, black and indigenous people who were categorized as freedmen right. um, and disenfranchised as such. I didn't know about black slave owners and all that. I didn't know about any of that. And I'm like, well, neither did I, but that's by design. We're not taught these certain things. Our history prioritizes white people, their lives, their complexity, especially in this nation. So I try to tell people to try to push back on that shame a bit because it's not 100% your fault. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, part of this difficult road that we're having towards having those so-called difficult conversations um, also involves some self-care, not just on our part, but on the part of white folk that we find ourselves in conversation with. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Because, you know, of that gut load of garbage that we have all inherited about America's past, yeah. it's not our fault. Right, <laughs> right. But we do have to take responsibility from digging out from under the weight of all that stuff. Right. Uh, but right. you do have to be, uh, you know, patient, Mm -hmm. with yourself, right, as you engage in that process of unlearning the things that uh, have been so hurtful and hateful and all that erasure. Got uh, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, listen, on, on the subject of your journeys, and I, I do make that plural, your journeys south and west, um, you know, they say travel changes you, and no doubt that's really true. But what are some of the specific and personal ways in which you feel that your journeys south and west have changed you. And I'm, I'm sure that's still um, like the layers of an onion, you're still figuring all that right, out. Right, right. Oh man, in so many ways. Um, after my trip, I started to say more black American identities mm -hmm. than just saying identity. Um, I'm a millennial. I am on the internet a lot. And one of the catchphrases that I've heard people my age, around my age, say is like, you know, Black people aren't a monolith, which is true. But it's one thing to read it. It's one thing to research about Black communities. It's another, it's another thing to be in the field doing work. So prior to me going to any community, I always got in touch with people from that community before I went there, particularly in the low country, because... Gullah Geechee culture is very vital to understand African-American cultures, but also it, they're vulnerable due to climate change, you know, low countries near the water, climate change, um, gentrification, a rising property taxes, so on and so forth. And I remember one of the women uh, that I spoke to, she told me like, when you come down here, it's going to be like nothing you ever seen before. And she was right. I mean, when I went to South Carolina, for example, I went to the Sea Islands. I, you would have thought, I, I mean, there were many moments where I would look at just the expanse of the trees and the swamps and the, and all, and I would think that I was in, if I had to imagine what West Africa looked like, mm -hmm. I would think of the low country. And in fact, some of the people that I spoke to, you know, who, who can trace their lineage from Senegal, for example, or from Liberia, they would have people from those areas coming to visit low country and they would notice the, the similarities in the flora and fauna, the heat, the landscape. So it's definitely, that was one thing about it. Um, another thing I'll say about how travel changed, I'll say as a, as a black woman, um, I definitely feel like I put myself in harm's way, not necessarily harm's way, but it's one thing for me to be mindful of my body and how I present to the world walking down a city street, you know, mm -hmm. being mindful of like street harassment. It's another thing where you're in the car and you don't know if this is where a gas station we should stop at, or this mm -hmm. is a town that you should stop at. Again, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to be like, if something happens, I have nothing on me. And like, I'm five feet tall. Most times when I would get a rental car, um, all I had was my recorder, my phone, my pocketbook, a notebook and pen and a prayer. That's all I had. And 
I had to treat myself as a teenager on many different parts, particularly in Oklahoma. Um, I had to take pictures of my rental car, tell, forward my hotel, my uh, airport confirmation, um, and to let people know when I got to my hotel room, not the hotel, but the hotel room, because I had been warned of the ways in which the people who who spoke to me for my book, they, they had their lives threatened before. They've had family members murdered, family members disappeared for their land allotments. And so I was coming into a very precarious situation. So with regards to travel, how did it make, how did it change me? Um, it definitely taught me more about the expansiveness of Black American lives by traveling across the country. It taught me about the vulnerability of being, a feel, being in the field as a Black woman. Um, but most of all, it, it, I mean, and, you know, for any of you who are spiritual, religious, there were moments where I definitely felt protected. I definitely felt watched over. What was inspiring about the trip is that even though there had been, there, you know, many of us have been displaced, many of us have those gaps, as you say, when I look over my transcripts, when I look over uh, rough drafts of my book, I could see how much Black people were in dialogue with each other from coast to coast even if they never met each other. And it was my job as the writer and researcher to synthesize the material. It felt like they were having conversations with each other. Every time I hear someone speak, I'd be reminded of a, a conversation I had with someone on a different side of the country. It was very magical in that way. So there's like, despite all these ways to separate us and to annihilate us, there's so much connection, even cosmically. So that was really inspiring for me. It is cosmic. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the book, it's a history book, The Slaves Civil War. Oh, no. But one of the things that is covered in that book, one of the things that's talked about is this spiritual grapevine that somehow connected us all. Mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I have um, three great uncle Lafayettes in my family. Wow. And, you know, Lafayette was a very popular name. During, I love that name. <laughs> yeah, and during the, the latter days of slavery because um, our ancestors who were around during the, uh, the Revolutionary War, the, the, the war to break away from Britain, um, slaves were big fans of General Lafayette because everybody seemed to understand that every time he got a chance to be in uh, President Jefferson's ear, he was constantly on him about, man, you got to this country is never going to move forward. This country is never going to be anything yeah. like you dream unless you kill slavery. It has got to go. Wow. Right? And so he, he was a consistently strong advocate for the abolition of slavery uh, at, you know, before the country was even officially born. Mm -hmm. And people knew this, and people found a way to honor General Lafayette by naming their sons uh, Lafayette after mm -hmm. him. Um, People uh, found ways to uh, aid the uh, the cause of the North. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously there was no internet and uh, most of our folk were not literate. And yet, how did the word somehow get around crossing hundreds and hundreds of miles, mm -hmm. right? That um, all y'all better be careful over there. Uh, there's the Southern Army's coming through and, and you got to hang on, right? You're gonna lose uh, half of half of your food for the next month because they're gonna requisition everything off the farm. Wow! You know, so but somehow we knew we passed that information along. So yeah, it's a powerful thing, which leads me into something else. Okay. Which also comes from your book because you talk about a very profound thing that somehow, uh, in the absence of all that land that mm -hmm. we lost mm -hmm. and are continuing to lose. Mm used to be a time when I was a kid when, you know, roughly 30% of, of African-American families owned significant land somewhere. And now it's down to 2%. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, it's dramatic. But you say in the closing pages of your book that uh, we are in our bodies, in our physical selves, the homeland. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I was almost afraid to put that part because I'm like, it's so, I don't know, saccharine or like so, I didn't know if it was too uh, melodramatic. Oh, I don't think so at all. But I, I think, you know what it is? I was speaking to a friend of mine. His name is Mason. Um, we actually 
uh, established a rapport with Twitter, and I met him in California. His family has been in California since I think Emancipation. Um, and I was and I was asking Thomas, I don't know how to end this book because mm-hmm. I don't want people to come away with this thinking it's just all brutal and sad, you know. This, but I'm like, I don't know what to say because black people keep moving. <laughs> you keep moving places, and he was just like, you know, we are the promised land, and I think about that. Because, and this is going to sound really weird, so I hope I can articulate it right, but as I mentioned earlier, um, I was very, you know, being in New York during the epicenter, um, like I said to people, it it was macabre. It was just, you didn't hear a thing. And I lived in Central Park. I couldn't hear a dog bark, people arguing. I couldn't even hear the bus pull up. All you heard every night was the sirens. And all I thought in my mind was like, I just hope somebody I know was not in that truck, that ambulance car. And what happened with George Floyd was devastating. But when I think about the black people that mobilized and marched, um, for, and I think about other people that marched for my li- our lives to matter, um, it, it galvanized me in a way that I didn't think it was going to galvanize me. And it thought, and it made me think of my spirit, like. We've been through so much. Not well, not me, but our people have been through so much. Where's this fight left? Mm-hmm. We should be tired. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I think after you know, when I think about the book that I just you know came out with, I'm like, there's just so much. I think about this the the research. I had to take breaks at certain times before dusk because I didn't want that to sit in my spirit. And I'm like, why? How do we still have this fight in us? And for me, like, I think when I think of We Are the Promised Land, I see paradise and other Black people. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I, like, we're all we got. Seriously. We really are all we have. And when I speak to Black people, they remind me of something. They may remind me of my grandmother's, you know, aphorisms. They may remind me of my mother's cooking. But they remind me that it's not just about me. They remind me that I'm part of a much bigger network. And I think being in, in, uh, in quarantine right now, um, socially distancing, sorry, um, it's reminded me of that, that my people are out there, that I may not be able to see them, but I know they're out there. And that's something that has given me much hope. It, make, it reminds me of my travels. It reminds me of like people that have the ability to speak up. Um, and, and that to me is, 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 the, is my piece of heaven, you know, is, is other black people you know, mm-hmm. talking to me, sharing our stories, because that's a lifeline, especially for me as a storyteller. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know what? It's a very poignant thing, but if you ever get a chance to um, look at some very old newspapers, newspapers from the early days of uh, Reconstruction, mm-hmm. um, you know, our, our folk had been mostly illiterate by design. Mm-hmm. It was illegal, as you well know, to teach mm-hmm. a Black person to read. Right. Right. And so one of the first things that our, our people did when freedom came was learn to read and write. We right. jumped, we were all over that, mm-hmm. right? And so you begin as early as the uh, late 1860s to see letters um, filling up the one-ed spaces of black papers. And, and there's one refrain, everybody's looking for their lost folk. It's funny. Yeah. See, this is why I talk about the spiritual grapevine because I'm actually working on an historical novel about that, what you just said. Are you? Cool. Yeah. You know, because, you, you know, you talk about paradise lost. And mm-hmm. if we find paradise in each other, then we are, we are, it, it's about physically looking for all those folk who've gone missing. Yeah. You know, and we, we all have so many people who've gone missing for different reasons. You talked about that Creole community down in Louisiana. Oh my God. And, and all of us have stories about people who have gone missing from our families because one branch of the family started passing for white and they literally disappeared from right. us because and of you, that. And you what? know what? Huh. It's funny because of the New York the New Yorker today, um, they described my novel, my novel, excuse me, my book as part detective. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's weird because I'm very conservative when it comes to labels. I don't want people call me an historian because I'm not institutionally trained. I don't want to call like oh I don't want people to say that I'm a detective because you know I don't have the tools. But I'm like, but it kind of was detective work because I had to. I all these different uh 
challenges, literacy or illiteracy rather, different families in different places and trying to find out through the senses, why was this person in this household here? But then 10 years later, they're in this household. And maybe um, they have a different name. Right, the different right? names, <laughs> different racial categorization, mm -hmm. misspelling of last names, right? Um, uh, blurry photographs, blurry documents. It was a lot of sleuthing. And there were so many false starts, so much circuitous motion. And I, I used to actually like talk a lot, like I feel like my ancestors don't want me to find them. I was like, I, I'm trying everything that I could, but you know what? And, and But I, I felt like I was like, you know what? It was detective and sleuthing. It was because it's like, I'm trying to find them and, you know, bridge this gap of like 150. Well, I, I was able to gather 300 years of family history, but you don't gather that much history without going through some discomfort. I'll just say that. <laughs> no, you don't. And uh, oh my God, I can certainly testify to that. Because uh, you're talking to somebody here who, who has completed the circle and, and uh, reconnected with some of our long lost African kin on the continent through oh, the whole DNA thing. What? Yeah. And let me just tell you real briefly, speaking of missing people, um, so I'm sitting to make a long story short, I'm sitting in a circle with about 80 uh, African folk related to me by blood. And, and I'm asking for stories about my direct ancestors who went missing. And, you know, they gave me a, a, a printout of everything that was in a notebook that some, one of the elders had written with um, records going back in, into the 1680s, you know, family tree data but they were unable to help me out with um, the, the precise story of the exact ancestor who went missing. Mm. But I received such uh, an emotional and, and spiritual embrace mm -hmm. in that place. It, it was profound. Wow. And one of the things that made it possible for them to uh, bridge that, that gap and understand that I was kin, speaking of, of, of things that we carry in the body that are embodied, mm -hmm. uh, my granddaddy, and my father both had some of the ugliest feet I ever seen. I have their feet. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and so do about half the people running around our ancestral village. So the second people saw my feet in those wow. sandals, they were like, Oh my God, ain't no question. This is our this is our blood right here. And in fact, one 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 chapter of a, uh, an unpublished memoir is I would know you by your feet, right? Which is about right. that. So I, I received a very unambiguous welcome. But as I was leaving, one of the, uh, the, the elders in the village came and sat next to me and she pressed a card into my hand with her phone numbers on it, hers and her daughters. And she told me the story about her son, Albert, mm -hmm. who had gone to Texas about 12 years before. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, for the first five, six years, I heard from him on a regular basis, he was sending me money, He'd write to me, he'd call, but for the last six, seven years, I haven't heard a word from him. Wow. Says, when you go back, will you please search for my son? So I did, and I got part of the way to finding him, but then every road turned into a dead end. Jeez. And I had to write back and say, I will never drop this, but I just got to let you know I've been having no luck finding him. But on the way to searching for Albert, I found my great uncle, whom my mother had not seen for 40 years. And so mama and my wife and, my, and, and me got on a plane about a couple weeks later and went to have dinner with him and, and have this reunion between my mother and her long missing brother, right? right. And so I'm forever hearing stories like that. Uh, it's, it's an unbroken chain of them because this has been a big part of our life in the USA is searching for our missing folk. It, and, it, it yeah. slavery and we're still doing it. And it's interesting because before I went to Louisiana, my liaison told me, she said, you know, when you go down there, don't be surprised if people can tell what parish you're from. And I was like, there's no way. I said it, in my mind, I didn't say it to her because I don't want to be disrespectful, but I was like, it's been a it's been multiple generations. And 
since my family has been in Louisiana and they have taken migrations to the Fifth Ward and, and Houston to Fayetteville, North Carolina, to New Jersey, they're not going to be able to see anything in his face. This face is all mixed up. Mm-hmm. And when I went down to Lafayette, Louisiana, um, some woman asked me, she was like, are you from St. Landry Parish? The first thing she asked. And I said, no, my family's from St. Martin Parish. St. Martin and St. Landry are only like an hour away from each other. Right, so that, right was just crazy and then when somebody said and I, people always love this part and i love it too um one lady said yeah it's the that i was with for the day she said it's her half moon eyes and i can't stand my eyes because when i when i smile they just my, they disappear me and my dad we do the same thing in photos and my mom can't stand it sometimes she'll take pictures like over oh, like i'm trying but i can't and it was only in louisiana that I that I found a description for those eyes, mm-hmm. and I, and people were able to pinpoint that parish. It's still it's eerie to me, but it it did happen. Yeah, it's powerful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I've I've been scanning the uh, questions that have been coming in from the people listening in, and one of the folks wants to know. I mean, obviously, you know, you you documented uh, who kind of helped you along the way, mm-hmm. uh, archivists and genealogists and and, and historians and researchers. But she's wondering, on a more personal note, uh, how you got the emotional and spiritual support that you most certainly have needed uh, during the harder um, legs of this journey. Because you got, you know, there's a lot of heavy stuff in your book, Um, uh, heavy emotionally. Yeah, uh, so I'm a Christian, and so a lot of prayer, I depended on my family and friends and loved ones a lot. But it was also about... um, implementing self-care routines and i tell people this all the time you know everybody always likes to ask writers and especially women of color what's your self-care like and i'll be honest i didn't really start caring about myself really until i started making more money i hate to say it but that's the truth and with this book i knew i had to change and one of the reasons why i had to start really implementing self-care practices is because when i was researching one topic and the topic was infant slave mortalities on rice plantations and I remember I was in my, I was on my couch. It was seven o'clock at night and the sun was beginning to set. And in tandem with the sun going down and me reading more of this journal, I just felt like it felt like sediment at the bottom of the ocean. Like it just felt like it was hard to digest. And that's when I was like, all right, this needs to stop. Before nightfall, you, you close that tab and you stop reading, you close that tab completely. And I had to do that because there was a history of historians, researchers, writers burn themselves out. I mean, one prominent example, her name is Irish Chang. Irish Chang wrote uh, the seminal work on the Nanking Massacre. And she was writing another book on a similarly heavy topic and she had mental issues committed suicide. So there is a precedent for this and I was very aware of that. So in terms of like keeping myself emotionally, intact i suppose you say um really just having treat myself like a teenager shut it off turn it off go go watch a disney movie go turn on your favorite music to to do that but also being in therapy therapy help but also i had to let myself feel you know because you you know you go through like we talked about earlier you go through motions why wasn't i taught this why isn't it easier why did white people make it so hard you know you just you go through those motions and it's like i had to make sure i had space for that at the same time of doing the work that i need to do to get done so validating my emotions making space for those emotions creating these um restrictions for myself with regards to the material that i just you know according to the time and also just opening up more to friends and family. My writing process used to be very uh, secretive, if you will. I didn't let people in on it. And I realized that when they say it literally, it, it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to create a book, especially a book of this scope. I needed to lean in on people in ways that I hadn't in, in, in the past. And I think that's why I was able to produce the book that I was able to produce. Yeah, thank you. You know what, a, a lot of the things that you just ran down are a great prescription for what we all need to be doing for survival's sake. They really are. I mean, that's yeah. kind of check, 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 right? All those things, all mm-hmm. those things and more. Um, you know, you talked about how the journeys that you took changed you and changed your perception of, of yourself and your family. But um, just real briefly, on a, on a broader scale, how did your journeys change your impressions of who we are as a people, Black folk, oh. African-Americans? 
oh man because the country is so vast like the country is big yeah, because the country is vast like how can african americans not be vast themselves what i mean by that is sub-ethnic groups creoles Gullah Geechee, uh freedmen you know what i'm saying like how could we not be vast in of ourselves so that's why i think there's this distinction like i've read about these things you know, I went to New York Public Library, I interviewed, but it's another thing to be in there. And you realize that even though we have distinctions, there are similarities and we definitely all have a stake in each other. Whether it's with displacement, black land loss, cultural, racial, we have a stake in these communities. And that's what I wanted to show in my book is that, you know, before, when I first started writing this book, I, my, the personal aspect was, was not in it at all, believe it or not. I just no, I do to, believe it. I do I, believe I, it. I just wanted to go to these communities and document what was going on. And be the and, fly on the wall. Like yeah, this. and be the fly on the wall. And right. then my editors were like, no, you need to write about this. Like, how could you not see that you're involved in this? I'm like, well, yeah, they're right. Because I'm just like, oh, I'm born in Jersey, and that's it. Um, and also, I have a literary ancestor, Zora Neale Hurston, taught me and many other Black women that you don't have to be a distant observer when writing about Black communities. You don't have to be cold and scientific and austere when you're writing about your own people. You can take a subjective approach and still be authoritative. And exactly. that and that helped fuel me to just like, just go all in and, and make it be more encompassing than it was before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel you. Well, tell me something else. Um, there's, I'm asking once again for a pretty broad and, and mm -hmm. global perspective, mm -hmm. but um, as you think about the current social and political landscape that we're all having to navigate our way through right now, mm -hmm. uh, between all the, the uprisings and the, the, the riots and all the quarantine caused by COVID, um, what, if anything, that you discovered out there gives you some hope about where we're all going, all of us, white, red, yellow, black, brown, um, but also very specifically the, the black community too. I mean, do you see some positive evolution and, and where do you think it's going? I think that, for example, we always gonna be here. Like, that's what I think is hopeful. Like, you're not getting rid of us. Like, we always gonna be here. I think one thing that has kept me hopeful about black people is that we got each other's back. These people did not know me from a can of paint, as my mother would say, but they still were so vulnerable and honest with me. Um, even in the book, they didn't want pseudonyms. I thought that I would have at least one person. I said, like, you know what? I don't want that. I don't want my yep. name in there. They wanted their names documented. And that was inspiring to me because I feel like that makes it easier for other researchers and maybe people to come, our descendants, to find them. Um, that's what's inspiring for me. What else is inspiring is just like, just the resilience of black people, I would say, just in general, like, and I think the, the, the interest that this book has gotten from people across different races means that there is a curiosity. And I do believe on a cosmic level, as you'd say, a mm -hmm. spiritual grapevine, that if you are doing honest and earnest work, people will find you, people that will help you in the field, people that will look over your work, people that will read you. And I think that that is what's inspiring for me is I really just had an earnest I had an earnestness to do this and I was found in more ways than one, metaphorically, figuratively, literally, and spiritually. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, thinking about, you know, finding things that, that you need right when you need them. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've got a question here from uh, a participant who identifies as white uh -huh. and who has uh, looked into you for some advice okay. about, um, books or, or other resources to plug into uh, where um, he can begin and, and where other folks, uh, like-minded folk like him, can begin to catch up on some of this missing history uh, okay. that you know, they were not given in school. Right. I would say the 1619 Project, that's a huge uh, thing to read, I would say. Um, I, would read, um, I would read The Warmth of Other Sons. Um, by Isabel Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. I would, yeah, uh, I would definitely read the scholarship of Sadia Hartman, S-A-I-D-I-Y-A -I -I -A, space H-A-R-T 
M-A-N. She deals, she's an historian who deals with uh, archives, lost legacies, the, vestige, uh, the vestiges of slavery. So that's someone I would look up as well. Um, I would also look into, man, this is so much. You know what? I feel like we're going through a literary renaissance, I would say, of Black art. Or renaissance, period. Right. TV, film as well. So it's it's hard. Like I would say Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, Jasmine Ward, Kiese Lehman. Um, these are people who are doing the work and they're not going to always say in historical detail, but their experiences of the American South, particularly Mississippi, for example, um, just so rich and vivid, vivid, excuse me, vivid and urgent and necessary. Um, these are people that I would, I, that I always tell others to read. Of course, Zora Neale Hurston, James Tony Morrison, Tony, oh, of course, Tony Morrison, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde. These are people that I think that if, if you got this whole smorgasbord of black authors, you'll be good. You know, I've got um, some some young uh, friends and, and mentees who I'm having a ball watching them uh, discover James Baldwin for the first time. Right. I, I mean, it's great. Right. Um, and, and so that's going on, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. When I first read Notes on a Native Son, I remember exactly where I was. I was in a computer lab trying to get my laptop fixed. And I <laughs> I mean, and he just, he literally took my breath away because mm-hmm. I thought that if someone who was Black and gay in the mid-20th century can write with that much fervor, then I have no excuse. <laughs> um, you know, so that's how I looked at it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? Another uh, listener has chimed in and, and is asking, and I think this is great, uh, if you will say something about this new piece of historical fiction that you're up to your eyeballs in writing now. Oh, man. It, Ooh, it, next it, thing. It, it's in the embryonic stages. Mm-hmm. But I am trying to write a novel, uh, a romantic novel that spans several generations about two enslaved people who fall in love and they're separated at the outbreak of the Civil War. Um, and the story I hope was gonna follow them for generations to come where even if even though they don't unite um, in uh, you know in their lives, their descendants end up finding each other in order to demonstrate this sort of cosmic reconciliation, if you will, yeah. tying up loose ends. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. And you so know what, there's something very, very um, current about that. Because uh, I think that's yeah. part of the journey we're all on. Yeah, and honestly, for me, it's like, I want to write a story where we win. <laughs> we win. And that's why, and that's the way I'm going to pitch it. I'm just going to sell it to my editors. I'm like, and the, and the spoiler alert is we end up winning. Our families mm-hmm. end up winning. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> um. I got to ask you, have, have you ever been up in our neck of the woods? Have you ever been here to Minneapolis, St. Paul? I have died, and I was huh. looking forward to coming. Yeah. Not only would I love to meet you face-to-face personally, but, um, you know, our state's attorney general, uh, Keith Ellison, is one of those uh, metoyer folks from uh, Louisiana. He is? Yeah, his yeah, mother's I people. Am- yeah, that's his mother's people. Oh, my God. I want to email him. I'm like, hey. And I got to meet. Uh, a whole bunch of his family from Louisiana when um, that independent film, Cane River, screened yes, here yes. About two years ago. Holy crap, yeah. Keith Ellison is a Matoire? Uh-huh. Oh my God, I want to like reach out to him now. I'm like freaking out. What? Well, now that I think about the way he looks, I'm like... Uh-huh. Yeah. It makes sense now, doesn't now it? Now about right. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, you know what? Those um, Akins you met, um, uh, that's some of my kin. Are you kidding me? In South Carolina? No, ma'am. So on my mother's side. What? Those circles of connection. You see? It's just like these concentric circles. We encounter each other everywhere we go. And that's what I said. I was like, when we see each other again without social distance, I feel like, you know, a lot of times young people, they ask ask people, what's your sign? What's your astrological sign? I feel like I'm just going to open where are people from. Just tell me where mm-hmm. you're from, because I bet I'll be able to get some type of guess. Like, for example, most Chicagoans I know, when they say uh, they're from the South, I say Mississippi, and I'm like, how did you know? I'm like, because there was a direct pipeline yes, from, like, from Mississippi to Chicago. To Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mississippi folk all over the place mm-hmm. yeah. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just like you find different pockets that kind of 
you know, and, and there's a large Creole community, as you know, in Los Angeles, right? That's Just like huge. there is in Houston. Yeah. Huge, huge community moved out there and all, you know, long, long convoluted history Absolutely. Uh, of all our intra-familial connections. Yeah. Just like you discovered more than one family connection with a particular line of somebody else's family. I got the same thing yeah. going on, right? Yeah. Uh, and those, those uh, uh, 20 and odd Africans who arrived here in 1619, uh, our, our family tree is, is deep, and we know that we are descended from at least two of those 20 and odd Africans who were among the first to land in the British colonies, anyway, in oh. 1619. So, I, so my question to you is, when you saw Aiken in the book, what did you think? Oh, well, I flipped out. Really? Oh, yeah. And called uh, my distant cousin here, Takumba Aiken, to talk about it. Really? Uh, the artist, yeah, because th those are all his people, too. Wow, I'm so oh, that makes me so happy. That's awesome. Well, I've got a, a another um, a question here from off of the uh, uh, the webinar chat, uh, and I'm going to quote it directly. He says, "Wandering is so personal, but so national at the same time." Did you set out to write a personal memoir, and it evolved into something else, or did the final manuscript match your original dream? No. <laughs> like actually my first dream was that I wanted to write about intergenerational fear and trauma that's what I wanted to write about African-Americans mm -hmm. and when I spoke to two scholars um they told me uh, black female scholars they were like no this sounds like a migratory school story then the next iteration was writing and writing about these communities and I didn't put anything in my family history I did not want that I wanted to give some context for you all, I started my career doing personal essays and what people call hot takes, quick op-eds. That was one of the only ways for women of color to gain a foothold in the industry when I was coming up, which is only six years ago, but it's like the Jurassic period in terms of the digital age. And so even though I had found much success with personal essays, I still had a bit of an insecurity that people didn't take me seriously enough. And so I thought that Wander was going to be the perfect deviation from that to be taken more seriously. And it wasn't until my editors were like, yeah, you have all this information, but where is the, where's the anchor here? You know, because mm -hmm. all this scorn us too. Then I returned to my roots, pun intended, and incorporated the personal because the, the, the fact that it matters, excuse my language, I'm damn good at the personal. I just am with the personal mm -hmm. essay. I just am. And so when I was writing it, Again, I was not, I wasn't writing it during the protests or the pandemic. I was writing it because it was a pilgrimage for me and it was healing for me. And it was, it was a, my prize. It was a prize because if I'm ever blessed to become a mother, I have this document to show to my children that now you can trace your family back 300 years. You can speak the names of your ancestors now. I have this document that can be shown to anyone who's just even a little bit curious about their history to be able to like, you know, let me ask more questions to the people in my life that are still living. Mm -hmm. That's what fills me with a lot of pride. So when I think about how it's taking on these broader implications, like obviously I thought about broader implications because I was trying to uh, synthesize all of these different stories under this huge American landscape, but the ways in which um, it is connected to people now, I did not foresee that at all. Yeah, and that's really a, a powerful little revelation. And yeah. one thing that I take from it is something that I feel really deeply, which is um, that hopefully books like yours mm -hmm. will inspire people. Um, if there's nobody in the family, in their extended family, who kind of fills that role of family griot or family historian, mm -hmm. that somebody will feel like, well, you know what? Nobody else seems to be as interested as I am in this. So let me step up right. and be that person. Right. Let me be the repository of my family's stories right because i can make sure they get passed on to these kids right who aren't really showing an interest yet but hopefully when they're ready i'll be ready with the stories right <laughs> and, right and hopefully they'll be ready to sit down and be sponges and take it all in so that they can take responsibility for being uh the the griots for that next generation right 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 absolutely yeah. You have to have somebody demonstrate the skill set first <laughs> and inspire and, you to do it. And right. so, thank you. Right? Thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I mean, I'm going to tell you, I was nervous because I'm like, listen, I'm not an ethnographer. I'm not a historian. I was not trained. I was not trained in this. 
but all I had was my curiosity and I'm thankful to say that that sufficed. That was that, that was the fuel to keep me going. Great. Well, you know, the, the resulting product is so wonderful. I, I so Thank much you. enjoyed jumping into your book with both feet and I equally uh, look forward to the next one Thank uh, you. when you're ready and when it's, when it's ready to be birthed into the world, um, I'll be waiting. Thank you. So I want to uh, thank you so much uh, for your time with us tonight. Uh, thank it's been you. great to, to chat with you again. My pleasure. Uh, even though it's only in this virtual space. That's all right. Yes, we did it. That wraps up our Carver County Library event with Morgan Jerkins. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Nancy Pearl. Nancy Pearl is America's librarian best known by many for conceiving the popular Community Reads movement. She is also a prolific author. Pearl's newest release, The Writer's Library, is an edited anthology showcasing how favorite books altered the lives of 23 chart-topping authors. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.